1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry.
1: And I'm Tracy B. Wilson.
0: And today's show uh, is going to feature a topic that's been requested by quite a few listeners. Uh, most recently, it was requested by listener Rachel, and not too far back, it was requested by listener Lindsay. And uh, to kind of set it up, so being the child of a president means that you are kind of constantly in the spotlight, even if you don't want to be. You're scrutinized by the press and judged by the public. And some kids kind of struggle to keep their noses clean. But uh, the focus of today's episode did not bother with that. She's kind of a wild child from the moment she stepped into the White House in 1901. Uh, Alice Roosevelt, who's, who we're going to be talking about, could have given any modern, famous kid, whether they're a presidential kid or just a, a child star, a run for their money in the wild behavior department. And she was completely unapologetic about it for her entire life. Uh For example, she kept an embroidered pillow in her home with one of Tracy's favorite sayings embroidered on it, which is attributed to her having said it, which is, if you can't say something good about someone, sit right here next to me.
1: I actually did not know that that could be attributed to her. I have always attributed it it to Steel Magnolias.
0: It has often been, uh, at least in the two biographies I looked at and in several other pieces, it is. And one of the things with Alice is that a lot of what you're getting is stories that were retold by family members and friends. So it's possible that she didn't say it initially, but she certainly, everyone credits her with that one. Uh, She was nicknamed the Second Washington Monument because she managed to amass quite a bit of social power in the U.S. Capitol. And she parlayed that into some political influence and how much so is still a bit of debate how much influence she really had politically. But she certainly was very close to power for her entire life. Uh, and so we will talk about that life and how she maybe used that power.
1: Alice was born to Theodore Roosevelt and Alice Hathaway Lee Roosevelt on February 12th, 1884.
0: And most people know sort of about the tragedy that happened in this family. Uh, Just two days later, on February 14th, Alice's father, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, ran home from his work as an assemblyman in the New York State Legislature. Uh, to their house at 57th Street because grave news had come. Uh, His mother, Martha Bullock Roosevelt, who was known as Mitty, had died of typhoid fever.
1: On top of that tragedy, only a few hours later, Roosevelt's wife, Alice, also died of Bright's disease. This is a kidney condition that's characterized by high concentrations of protein in the urine. She'd been living with Bright's disease for quite some time, but her pregnancy had complicated the condition and weakened her overall level of, of health.
0: Uh, and as you can imagine, that double loss to lose a parent and your spouse within about four hours uh, really devastated Roosevelt, who was only 25 at the time. And he wanted, quite plainly, to escape all reminders of this loss. He even went so far as to forbid the mention of his wife Alice's name. Uh, And his grief continued to burden him. And by the end of 1884, he had decided to kind of pare down his involvement in politics and to go west for a while. So he moved out to the Dakota territories and he had spent time there before. Uh, We could talk about that if we do a Teddy Roosevelt episode. And he established Elkhorn Ranch there for a life that he wanted to kind of live in isolation of ranching. He also worked as a sheriff. And he did not take the infant Alice with him, who uh, was usually called Baby Lee, presumably because the name Alice, uh, which was her given name, caused Roosevelt so much pain. So he left Baby Lee in New York.
1: She stayed with Roosevelt's sister, Anna, who was called Bamy. And eventually Alice called her Auntie Vi. He wasn't totally absent as a father, though. There were several times during the next two years where his work brought him back east, and he would spend time with the baby during these trips. But Bamey was her primary parent during this period of baby
0: Lee's life. Uh, In June of 1886, Alice's father was ready to resume life in New York. The home that he had contracted to be built just after his wife's death was completed Uh, And he resumed his role as Alice's father full time as they moved into their Oyster Bay, Long Island house.
1: In December of 1886, Theodore Roosevelt remarried and his new bride was Edith Caro, who had been his childhood sweetheart. Edith and Teddy would have five children together.
0: Roosevelt uh, ran for vice president on the ticket with William McKinley in 1896. The pair was reelected for a second term. Uh, but then on September 6th of 1901, McKinley was shot by anarchist Leon Leon Cholgosh uh, at the Pan-American Exposition in Buffalo, New York. And eight days later, the president died from his wounds and Roosevelt, having been vice president, became president.
1: When the Roosevelts moved into the White House in 1901, Alice was 17 and she pretty much immediately became a celebrity. She was known for her wild antics and rebellious behavior. She was a party girl to rival any celebrity today. And she had started to appear in gossip magazines back when she was 16. She basically stayed there for her father's entire time in office.
0: Yeah, one uh, biographer made a comment that all Edith and Teddy needed to do to know what Alice had been up to the night before was to open the morning paper. Because her antics were such a... Uh, great drawers of readers that papers would put them on the front page even sometimes pushing out much bigger and more important news uh, Alice smoked which you know for a young lady not not so delightful uh, and when her father forbid her to do so under his roof she just moved that habit outside and so she would start sitting on the White House roof to enjoy cigarettes she also played poker and she bet on horses she was sort of famously photographed placing a bed at one point she would ride in cars with men without chaperones. Uh, she wore pants on occasion, which, of course, was very unladylike at that time. And she would race her own car through the streets of Washington.
1: She would also barge in on meetings at the White House, seemingly with causing trouble as the only reason for having done that. She claimed to be a pagan to fly in the face of her very religious stepmother. She called Christianity voodoo to kind of rile her up. She had a pet snake named Emily Spinach that she carried around the house with her and even to parties. There are some accounts that say it was a boa constrictor, but others say it was a garter snake. I can hardly imagine two less similar snakes.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, the snake story is one that um, it gets told again because there are often biographers use firsthand accounts from friends and relatives anybody knows that, like, even in your social group, there are stories that have grown out of, you know, their original proportions. And so we really don't have a sense of the snake situation and what the realities were of it. Some will say she showed up at one party with a huge boa constrictor on her neck. Others say she carried this snake in her pocket all the time. And when I was relaying this to some friends last night while we were talking about it, they thought, like, the way a child will pick up a weird animal and put it in their pocket. I'm like, no, no, she was like... 18 and 19 at this point. She was just carting around a snake for entertainment. Um, The press dubbed her Princess Alice. So her favorite color, for example, was a grayish blue and that became very, very trendy. It was called Alice Blue. Uh, She basically, you know, was a, a celebrity icon at this point. And her father, the president, is often quoted as saying, I can either run the country or I can attend to Alice, but I cannot possibly do both.
1: A friend of the family once said that she was, quote, like a young wild animal that had been put into good clothes.
0: Uh, And in 1905, so several years into their time at the White House, she served as a goodwill ambassador, traveling to Asia with a group of congressmen. And this was the first time a first daughter had taken on such a duty. In this trip, which was dubbed the Imperial Cruise, uh, it's entirely likely that President Roosevelt really looked at this mission as a way to keep his troublesome eldest daughter out of his hair for a little while.
1: I feel like that's a sitcom waiting to happen.
0: <laughs> uh, and we're going to get into the deals, details of that trip because some wacky things happened there. But before we do, do you want to pause for a word from a sponsor? Let's do that.
1: Hey, Ollie, we have some exciting news.
0: Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app.
1: So on this Goodwill tour, Alice traveled with a large group. There was Secretary of War William Howard Taft, 23 congressmen and seven senators. Alice made headlines everywhere she went in part because of her wild behavior which continued on the road. She set off firecrackers on the train on the first leg of the trip from Washington to San Francisco. She fired her pistol from the train as well, aiming at telegraph poles as they passed them.
0: Yeah, I read one account that suggested that she kind of wrote it off as well it's the fourth of July. This is how I'm celebrating. When a light firecrackers inside a train. <laughs> I just it seems foolish, Alice. Don't do it. Uh, and as well as the welcoming gaze of the press, because they really did just follow her everywhere. She also caught the eye of Representative Nicholas Longworth of Cincinnati. Taft was apparently beside himself trying to serve as a chaperone and keep Alice and this representative apart because this man was 15 years his her senior. But eventually Taft just gave up and was like, I can't control this situation.
1: The following year, Alice actually married Longworth, who was a notoriously womanizing drinker. And their ceremony was very lavish. It was at the White House, and it was front page news. This wedding took place on February 17th, 1906, and for Alice, it represented a break for freedom. She no longer had to live with her stepmother, and according to the account of biographer Stacy Cordry, when Edith said farewell to Alice after the wedding, her parting words were, I want you to know I'm glad to see you leave. You have never been anything but trouble.
0: So after a honeymoon in Cuba, Alice and Nicholas settled into married life together. And while it was not exactly the conventional romantic dream marriage, it sort of worked for the two of them. Um, They weren't really in love so much as they were comfortable with one another. Presumably they were drawn together because they were both sort of these big, extreme partying personalities. Uh, And they both remained the people that they were before they said their vows. So there was some headbutting, there were some wild times, and there was some infidelity on both sides of that equation.
1: When her father's time in the White House ended in 1909, Alice allegedly buried a voodoo doll of the new First Lady Nellie Taft in the lawn before the new president moved in. For that, and also for her very public criticism of the Tafts, Alice was banned from the White House for their tenure there. Yeah,
0: yeah there were several times she's not welcome in the White House. Uh, a few years later, the Longworth marriage would really be tested when Teddy Roosevelt went toe-to-toe with Taft in a political battle. The bigger issue for Alice than Nicholas's extramarital dalliances was that her husband supported William Taft in the 1912 campaign against her father's newly formed progressive Bull Moose Party. She had actually advised her father against this move, but she remained stalwartly loyal to him even when he disregarded her advice. And she also opted to appear in her husband's home district of Cincinnati with Hiram Johnson, her father's vice presidential running mate, instead of with her husband on his campaign. And Longworth lost that election, which Alice sometimes took credit for, uh, even though he did end up getting reelected a couple years later. Uh, but Alice and Nicholas did manage to survive the upheaval uh, their marriage did through through that sort of disastrous and very rocky 1912 election cycle. Their marriage remained intact, although politically it was pretty distant at that point. They weren't sort of of the same mind in any way.
1: To add insult to injury, the 1912 presidential election went to Democrat Woodrow Wilson, due in part to the split in the loyalties of the Republican Party between Taft and Roosevelt. So just as Alice had been vocally critical of Taft, she also vocally criticized Wilson, and in some ways, even more so. She was once again banned from the White House after publicly making coarse comments about the president.
0: Not so long after this, uh, Teddy Roosevelt died in his sleep. It was in Janu- on January 6th of 1919. And he was 60 at this point, and he had a coronary embolism. And at that point, uh, Wilson had already proposed the League of Nations in his 1918 speech before Congress as part of his 14 points plan. Roosevelt had hated that, and in turn, so did Alice, because she pretty much always followed her father's political leanings. And she rallied very hard against the U.S. becoming a member of the League of Nations uh, after her father died. And that the League did formally form in Geneva, Switzerland in 1920. So Teddy's eldest daughter basically used every single scrap of influence she had to sway politicians in Washington, D.C. against the idea of joining the League. And whether it was her efforts or not, the U.S. never became a member.
1: During the 1920s, Alice started an affair with the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. That was Senator William Bora of Idaho. The two of them bonded over their shared admiration of her late father and their love of literature. She and the senator would send letters to one another, and they were deeply in love. As their affair became less and less of a secret, Alice was dubbed Aurora Bora Alice by the press and gossip circles.
0: And in 1925, uh, Alice's husband, Nicholas Longworth, became speaker of the house. And that same year, they also welcomed their one and only child, Paulina, into the world. And Longworth was completely excited about this baby and doted on her, even though the odds are that the infant was in fact fathered by Alice's paramour, Bora, and that Nicholas actually knew that. Uh, in a bittersweet sort of coincidence, Polina was born on February 14th which, of course, is Valentine's Day, but was also the same day that Alice's mother and grandmother had died many years prior.
1: Also in 1925, Alice and Nicholas moved into their home at 2009 Massachusetts Avenue Northwest, which is just west of DuPont Circle. Alice would live there for the rest of her life, and the house, which was built in 1881, would serve as a home base for the first daughter's many famed uh, social events that she would host for the next six decades.
0: Uh, in 1931, Alice's husband, Nicholas Longworth, died. And unfortunately, he didn't really leave much behind in terms of finances for his widow. His family money was almost entirely gone. And while her lover, William Borah lived another nine years, it doesn't appear that he really helped his mistress out financially. Two
1: years after her husband's death, Alice published her memoirs, Crowded Hours, in an Effort to Make Some Money.
0: And this was also the year that Franklin Delano Roosevelt took office. So just in case you don't know the scoop, uh, some people think that the, he was much closer, much more closely related to Teddy Roosevelt than he actually was. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt and FDR, only distant related. They were fourth cousins once removed. I've also seen them listed as fifth cousins, so. Uh, Your command of genealogy and how that works may affect your perception of that. Um, FDR's wife, Eleanor, however, was actually much more closely related to the former president because Theodore Roosevelt had been her uncle.
1: Alice was really pretty cutting when it came to Franklin and Eleanor. She once described Franklin Delano Roosevelt as one-third sap and two-thirds Eleanor. Alice apparently would do unflattering imitations of Eleanor at tea parties, I think we recently got a a request for us to do a whole episode about the Eleanor Alice feud.
0: We did. And its uh, I debated over it as we were prepping this. And really, at the end of the day, that just boils down to um, a lot of descriptions of kind of petty arguments. So that isn't the best for a whole episode, but there were a lot of arguments and a lot of nitpicking. It was one of those things where, like, they would gossip to friends about one another and kind of circulate really insulting things. Uh, you know, it was a pretty catty situation. Uh, in 1938, Alice and her half brother collaborated as as editors on a book of poetry. And that same year she put the house on Massachusetts Avenue on the market, although it never sold. Uh, Her social engagements became the invite in Washington, and Alice was pretty open about her opinions, both political and social, and she kind of used all of her social events as as opportunities to broadcast these opinions (laughs) to really the elite of Washington.
1: She also licensed her image for use in advertisements for products like cigarettes and cold cream, and she did all of this to try to support herself and Paulina.
0: As we are sort of nearing the end of Alice's life, let's uh, first pause for a word from one of our sponsors. Hi everybody, my name is Max Homa and I'm Shane Bacon and we want to tell you about our new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon. I'm a PGA Tour champion and a guy that has dreamed his whole life to be on the largest stage, compete in the biggest events and have a chance at making history in a sport that has been a bit of a roller coaster for me as a professional. I know the only reason you chase this dream of being a pro is you could one day become a crossover media darling. You too could be a co-host of a podcast and that dream is now a reality Max and I will take you through life on the PGA Tour. And our goal is to allow you in as we both pay our respective rents and bills from this silly sport that we can't help but love. So do us a favor. Download and subscribe to Get a Grip with Max Home and Shane Bacon. It's our opportunity to bring to life the conversations we are already having, the rants and tangents we will tackle, and the best and worst parts of being a professional golfer. Way more best parts, bro. Listen and follow Get a Grip with Max Homan and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now we will get back to our story. So uh, Alice did continue to make political friends throughout her entire life. That really was sort of her circle. So she always knew uh kind of many people in power. And she eventually became close friends with Richard Nixon when he was serving as vice president. And then when Nixon became president, he would often invite Alice, who usually went by Mrs. L, uh, to the White House. He even hosted her 87th birthday party there. So even though she had been banned for a couple of uh different presidencies, she was allowed back in eventually. Uh, but her close friendship with Nixon did not survive the Watergate scandal. Alice sort of distanced herself from Nixon, and when asked about it, she would claim that the whole thing, meaning that whole scandal, had become, quote, boring.
1: She also became close with the Kennedy family, despite their Democratic affiliation. And in spite of her lifelong position as a Republican, Alice supported the Democratic Party in 1964 and 1968. I wonder how much of that had to do with, like, the shifting ideologies of the parties
0: at that point. Uh, not an insignificant amount. Uh, you know, she was not a woman who sort of just blindly went down party lines. She really was pretty thoughtful about her positions. She would get sort of so adamant and passionate about them that you might think that she had lost sight of the forest for the trees in some cases. But I think she really did, you know... Welcome the ideas of other people. She liked to have political discourse. So I'm sure when someone made a case for a situation that she thought was certainly sensible and made sense to her, she didn't necessarily see it as changing sides so much as, no, I'm still going on with my convictions. They just happen to align with these people at the moment. Uh Another tragedy struck in 1957 when uh, Alice's daughter, Polina, died from a combination of sleeping pills and alcohol, uh, sometimes referred to as a purposeful overdose, sometimes couched in slightly more nebulous terms. Uh, but Polina did leave behind a daughter, Joanna Sturm, and Alice actually raised her granddaughter after Polina's death.
1: As the years were on, that house outside of DuPont Circle grew shabby and cluttered, but it really didn't seem to concern the aging first daughter so much. She let the yard grow over and the house filled up with papers. She started spending the majority of her time on the third floor with her books and a well-stocked refrigerator for snacks during reading breaks. Uh, and it does sound a little like Grey Gardens, but she did not go completely broke
0: yeah and she still had servants uh She had made a rule that the servants weren't allowed to stay at the house because she didn't like being awakened early uh One story goes that the servants would arrive at eleven and she would usually tell them to go away and she would go back to sleep until one o'clock in the afternoon um but yeah, she wasn't like isolated without people um But Mrs. L. did start to lose her mental edge eventually. But her granddaughter, Joanna, visited frequently. Uh, They stayed close. And Joanna also sort of started this effort to make sure that Alice's friends were stopping by and that Alice wasn't like a lonely old lady in a crumbling house. She really wanted her to stay social.
1: Alice died in 1980, a week after her birthday at the age of 96. In accordance with her wishes, she had a very quiet burial, and she had outlived all of her half-siblings from her father's second marriage.
0: Yeah, it's kind of one of those interesting things. You usually expect the wild party child to burn out much earlier than the rest of the family, but she just kept on going, and she was a spitfire the whole time. Um In her memoirs, Alice, who very obviously to everyone loved and admired her father, was pretty open, though, that she struggled with some resentment uh, with him, particularly about his move west after her mother died. She really felt that he had kind of abandoned her as an infant. And she also admitted that she had been really jealous and angry at having to vie for his attention to compete with his second wife once he did come back to New York and then their five children. Like, she just felt like she never got to have her father to herself.
1: She wrote in her diary while she lived at the White House, quote, father doesn't care for me. That is to say, one eighth as much as he does for the other children. I pray for a fortune. I care for nothing except to amuse myself in a charmingly expensive way.
0: Yeah, it sort of reads like such a classic psychological study of like a child that acts out for attention, Um and sort of, you know, her feelings of being ignored and unwanted kind of lead to that behavior that really informed her entire life. Uh, but one of the things that I really love about Alice is that she is as quotable as can be. Uh, what really made her stand out throughout all of her years were her amazing quips, some of which were very catty and some of which were just sort of wonderfully witty. So I thought to close out, we would <laughs> cover a few favorites. Uh, Do you want to tell the first one? Yeah. So
1: Joe McCarthy tried to call her by her first name, and she said, no, Senator McCarthy, you are not going to call me Alice. The truckman, the trashman and the policeman on the block may call me Alice, but you may not.
0: (laughs) I sort of love that. Uh, The one that I really love, her quote, (laughs) is that uh, she once said, my specialty is detached malevolence.
1: I love that so much. Her life philosophy was fill what's empty, empty what's full, and scratch where it itches.
0: That seems like very sensible advice.
1: Yeah, we um. <laughs> she reminds me a bit of of Edna St. Vincent Millay. Oh uh, yeah, and and we actually got a letter after our episode on Edna St. Vincent Millay uh, from somebody who was kind of chagrined that we had talked about her shenanigans in a gleeful way, whereas if uh, if she had been a man, we would not have talked about it in a gleeful way. And like, there was a whole aspect of it that had to do with her being expelled from school and allowed back in because she was a celebrity, which is not totally germane to this episode. But I think part of that is that uh, when, when Alice was behaving this way, she was challenging the status quo. And me- men doing similar things were maintaining the status quo. So that is why... When women quote misbehave, sometimes we sound quite gleeful about it.
0: Well, I love anybody that's a Spitfire. Um, but I I, I can totally see as well how she was just a pain in the neck. Like, I can't, can you imagine if a modern president, like, if we heard a story of like President Bush's twins when he was in office or President Obama's girls just jamming themselves into meetings. Like, we would never hear the end of it in the press and how horrifying it was. But Alice did this stuff, and somehow people just loved her so much that they thought it was hilarious. It's like, oh, she interrupted another important meeting in the White House. Like, who would do that? Yeah, well, Uh,
1: making her a goodwill ambassador is one of those things where I'm like, what What were you thinking? That really sounds like she's just going to pants the ambassador from China and then run away giggling, and that would just be horrible. For international
0: affairs. Yeah, so in that regard, it might be good, and I do this with a question mark. I'm not actually saying this is a good thing, but her having taken up with uh, Longworth, with this man who was much older and kind of having that little adventure on that trip, may have saved some embarrassment. An international behavior. Yeah, she was occupied and could not pants somebody, (laughs) Uh, but... Yeah, she, uh, I could see where she would be a lot to deal with. And it is interesting. One of the uh, articles that I read for this was actually written by a biographer of hers, but it was contextualizing it uh, in sort of looking at modern presidents' children and how there is to some degree this this unspoken rule of like you leave the kids out of it and you don't really focus on them, uh, but that like remember when uh, President Obama's Children, I don't remember which of the girls it was, like rolled her eyes at some event and people were all in a a Twitter about it. And she's like, are you kidding me? Do you know what Alice Roosevelt did? (laughs) Uh, she's like, if a 13-year-old girl rolls her eyes, like you consider yourself lucky on that one because it could be like it was in the early 1900s, uh, which is just sort of a funny way to couch it. But now I have listener mail and I'm doing a thing that I always feel bad I don't do more of. Uh, which is that I just want to call out some of our listeners who write us actual physical mail. And some of them, one of the things I love is that we have listeners who travel the world and some of them will write us multiple letters or postcards from their various travels. So I wanted to talk about two of those. Um, one is, the first is Becky and Becky lives in Spain, but she travels all over and she sends us these amazing postcards. Uh, one is a, um, a postcard that is a British poster from the Second World War about sort of, uh, you know, being frugal. And it says, go through your wardrobe, make do and mend. And it's a woman with her wardrobe finding what clothes she can mend rather than having to consume resources by buying new clothes. Uh, and then in another one, she ju- we just got this one. She sent an image of um, the Northern Lights uh, in Iceland and she went to try to see them. But it did not work out. She instead saw lots of snow and clouds, <laughs> but she also got to try what she calls fermented shark fin and alcoholic fish juice. Actually, I have no idea what it was, but that's what it smelled like. So, uh, she is now back home in Spain, but uh, thank you so much, Becky, for sending e- us these postcards. It's like a nice vicarious trip around Europe with you. So we appreciate those. Another listener who has sent us multiple postcards is our listener, Zoe. And she, uh, sent us a beautiful, large, black-and-white image of Schloss Neuschwanstein, which is, uh, you know, the Mad King Ludwig Castle, uh, which is gorgeous. And then another one that is a small portion of uh, Madame de Pompadour, the famous Madame de Pompadour portrait, that she went to uh, Munich to visit museums, and she particularly went to the museum to see this portrait. And that part of the museum was closed, and she was very dismayed. And then she found out when she was in the gift shop making a purchase the ladies that worked there told her that actually that that particular painting had been moved across the street during the remodel, so she raced over to another museum and got to see it after all. Hooray! So thank you, Zoe, for sending both of those. Again, I, I get to go to museums vicariously, and I love it. Uh, and the third little bit that we have is from our listener, Tabitha, and she sent us a card from the Herschel Carousel Factory Museum in New York. And she says, just in case you're ever vacationing in the area, I do recommend stopping by the Herschel Museum in New York, Several of our listeners, as an aside, I should say, have mentioned this museum and how amazing it is. Uh, they have a history exhibit about Herschel's animals, and they do restoration work there. You can actually see the whole process. That's what I would love to see. Best of all, they have an old carousel set to the older, faster, adult thrill ride speed. Each of the horses has either been restored or is on the to-do list for restoration. The whole building is full of beautiful pieces and art history. Uh Thank you, that's an awesome, I love this little card and I love hearing that there are fast carousels out there still. <laughs> uh, I want to run and ride one. If you would like to write to us uh, electronically, you can do so at HistoryPodcast at com. We're also at Facebook.com slash mist in History, on Twitter at Myst in History, at mistinhistory.tumblr.com and at pinterest.com slash mistinhistory. If you want shirts or phone cases or tote bags or other goodies, you can go to mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com to purchase those. If you would like to learn a little bit more about what we talked about today, you can go to our parent site, how Stuff works. Type in the name Alice Roosevelt, and one of the articles that comes up is 16 classic, modern, and completely iconic weddings. And they mention her wedding to Nicholas and how it was so crowded there in the White House that... The guests had to accept that they were not gonna actually see the ceremony, they just did not have eye line to it, so they tried to arrange people so that they could at least see Alice being walked down the aisle, uh, by her father, and that was, that was all of what some guests got to see, so. It's a, a fascinating little story. And then there are 15 other uh, iconic weddings to look at in that article, some of which are fictional and include Han and Leia. Uh, if you would like to go to our home on the web, that's missedinhistory.com. We have all of our episodes archived, show notes for all of the episodes since Tracy and I have been on the show, as well as the occasional blog post. And if you would like to, we highly encourage you to visit both housedoveworks.com and missedinhistory.com. You're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So, subscribe to the women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 27 Club is a new podcast about famous musicians who died prematurely and sometimes mysteriously at the age of 27. This podcast is hosted by me, Jake Brennan Creator and host of the hit music and true crime podcast, Disgraceland Season 1 features 12 episodes on the life and death of Jimi Hendrix The 27 Club contains adult content and explicit language You can listen to The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts Or wherever you get your podcasts Watch out for your ears